I'm going to be talking to Keith Stewart from Greenpeace, uh, whose organization has lodged a complaint with the Canadian Competition Bureau about a Let's Clear the Air advertising campaign that's being run by the Pathways Alliance. And the Pathways Alliance is made up of uh, the six largest oil sands producers uh, in the sector. So uh, we'll see what uh, it is that they object to. So welcome to the interview, Keith. Thanks for having me. Okay. What is the basis of the complaint to the Competition Bureau? What are the oil sands companies saying that you don't like? So they are saying that they are committed to net zero. It's part of their big advertising push. And these ads are everywhere. Like every podcast I listen to, newsletters I get, front page of the Toronto Star, the full cover, you know, multiple pages in the Globe and Mail. You know, it's TV ads. You know, you try and, you try and watch the World Cup and you're seeing these ads, even the Super Bowl. Like they're everywhere. And they're basically saying, you know, the, the, the oil companies are trying to paint themselves as part of the solution. And they're saying, you know, we're committed to net zero. And the thing is, there's actually clear guidelines from the UN on, you know, what constitutes greenwashing versus a, a genuine commitment to net zero that have been developed with an expert panel. They, it applies to sort of hundreds of companies and municipalities around the world. They've sort of tried to, they've tried to clarify it because, you know, when, when people get to make up their own definitions of green stuff, you just get greenwash. And what we said was we, we looked at the, you know, the, the performance of these companies. And, you know, what they're actually promising, we compared it to that UN criteria, also some stuff from the OECD, as well as the rules set out by Canada's own competition bureau. And we said, you know, they, they don't measure up. They shouldn't be able to make this claim. Um, and the reason that they're, they're doing this is because they're trying to gain a competitive advantage vis-a-vis -vis competitors. Okay. Let me play devil's advocate for here for a moment. The Pathways Alliance has set out a... Uh, what it calls its plan to reach net zero by 2050. It includes uh, reductions uh, that will, about two thirds of them come from carbon capture, utilization and storage. The other uh, third will come from efficiency improvements uh, from different technologies like solvent substitution in the SAG-D production. They say they have a plan. They've already begun working on the design uh work around the the uh, carbon capture and the pipeline that'll take it the co captured co2 and bury it uh, near cold lake alberta uh they so what they're saying is we have a plan to get to to net zero emissions here's what we're going to do here's roughly the timeline and how much it's going to cost uh so what is misleading about that so what the, basically the first criteria coming out of the UN is when, if you're going to claim net zero, you have to look at full life cycle emissions. So technically scopes one, two, and three. And the oil sands companies are very clear. They say, we're only going to deal with our production emissions, scopes one and two, which is 10 to 15% of the total. The other 80, 85, 85, 90%, whatever, um, that's someone else's problem. And that's just not on. Um, you know, if you're going to say we are committed to net zero, you have to fit into a net zero world, which also means you're not burning the stuff at the end. Now, I know you're saying we can keep doing oil sands, we can produce carbon fibers. Out. That's not what they're saying. They want to, you know, continue to sell oil and gas to be burned in cars and homes and factories. Um, and so that's the, the number one thing is, OK, you can't say, oh, we're net zero with an asterisk for 10 percent of our emissions. 
The second bit is the other thing that uh, the UN, one of the other criteria put forward by the UN is, okay, if you are committed to net zero, you can't be investing in new fossil fuel production. And all of these companies are. I mean, Synovus just submitted an application to keep their Christina Lake plant open until 2079. Um, it's the largest in-situ oil sands operation in the world. Um, and then thirdly, the criteria say, if you are engaged in this, you can't be lobbying against climate policies. You actually have to be supporting policies which help everyone get to net zero. And again, all of these companies are. Um, you know, they're resisting the federal gap cap on greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, but they're also, you know, five of the six are members of CAP, um, which has been very actively opposing, you know, including having like public petitions saying, you know, don't do this federal government. Um, it's not even just, you know, backroom lobbying. They're actually like getting people to sign up and oppose these things in public hearings, et cetera. So that combination says, you know, you guys can't be taken seriously. Okay. Uh, I think you have a, a pretty good argument on the, the lobbying side of things. They very publicly opposed the oil and gas emissions cap and uh, energy media has been covering uh, the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers caps, mm -hmm. uh, climate policy documents for a long time. And they're pretty slippery. Uh, they're not credible, in my opinion. We've been saying this for years. So I'll grant you number three. On the issue of scope one, two or three emissions, uh, frankly, uh, I can't think of an oil company in the world that really has a credible plan to address scope three emissions. And yeah. if I were sitting at the competition bureau, I go, well, show me somebody else who's done it. Uh, how do you respond to that? So what we would say is then you should be investing in alternative forms of energy. You should be in the new clean energies of the future. And you have some company, some oil companies that are making more of a move there than others. Total, for instance, you know, is, you know, amongst the larger investors in renewables, and they sort of say that's where they're they're going to go. Um, BP, until recently, said, you know, in 2030, we'll be producing 30% less oil as we move into other energy sources. None of the oil sands companies are doing it. And like Suncor this year actually sold off all of their wind and solar assets in order to buy a bigger stake in the Fort Hills oil sand mine. Okay. I'm going to give you the argument I think you should have made. And I don't, I'm not sure why you didn't do it, but so generally the scope one and two emissions are about 20% and scope three emissions are about 80%. And I've interviewed Kevin Burns of S&P Global. He, in my opinion, uh, an economist, and he's been working on these oil sands emissions. He's the gold standard for emissions, uh, historical emissions and emissions forecast. So I interviewed him a couple months ago. Their forecast uh, now, so in 2017, the oil sands were at 72 megatons a year. 2022, they're at 80 megatons a year. By 2025, that's forecast to go to 90 megatons a year. The only <laughs> way it won't hit 100 megatons a year by 2030 is if the Pathways Alliance members are successful in in uh, with their plans to start carbon capture utilization and storage and be able to, to store it underground. And... That's but they've made it very clear that if if the there are delays in that, then though they won't they won't hit their numbers. So I think that's the far and away the strongest argument is that they're telling they're telling the public that we're looking after their emissions while their emissions are rising. Their scope one and two emissions are rising. So why didn't you go that route? So 
well, I mean, we put in their missions there. The, the reason we didn't go that route is because in my experience dealing with these types of submissions, um, the minute you get into kind of dueling experts, the the competition bureau have also done this for the ads standards council. They kind of say, you know, we don't know enough to be able to know who's right in these various, their expert, you know, the oil companies say this, this expert says that, how do we know? But we tried to do is, okay, there's, here's like the, the these red lines that came from the UN and they are clearly and without question crossing each of those. So rather than making an argument, which I think you're quite right on, <laughs> but it'd be kind of like, they could say like, you know, we don't know enough about the technical stuff to know who's right here. Um, and, you know, the oil companies can put up, you know, people with credentials who say the, op the opposite. So we were kind of like, okay, let's keep this simple. It's like, here's, you know, three clear, but they, the UN actually calls red lines on greenwashing. And they are crossing all of them. And I mean, the interesting things, particularly for Canadians, is the person that who the UN Secretary General tapped to lead the high level group that's establishing these standards is... Uh, Canada's former environment minister, Catherine McKenna, uh, who knows this industry well. Um, and, you know, she's been quite vocal, including, you know, with respect to our report saying, yeah, the, the companies aren't, you know, the, they, they put their hand up, said they're committed to net zero. They're not doing the work. Now, I want to get back to a point that you you uh, uh, addressed or just touched upon in your first comment. And, you you know, we talked about carbon fiber and some of our listeners our, our viewers may not be familiar with uh, Energy Media's editorial stance on this. We argue that the oil sands uh, production of bitumen should be transitioned between now and 2050 from producing feedstock for refineries for fuels like gasoline and diesel to feedstock for advanced material manufacturing, which includes carbon fiber, but could also be asphalt binder and activated carbon. There's all kinds of things. Bitumen is actually a lot more valuable when you make something out of it than when you burn it. And so we that's our position. Stop burning it and make things with it. That's the, the future of the oil sands. But uh, if you do that, you have you the only way that the oil sands has a long-term future is at a not net zero emissions but zero emissions don't they don't yeah. get carbon credits and get to do all of that accounting uh finagling it's got to be zero and they've got to clean up the tailings ponds if that if the uh, bitumen is is transitioned to feedstock for advanced materials manufacturing and you're not burning it there's your there's scope three solution and so you know, I think in, the, in that universe, that's a really interesting solution. But that's not what any of the companies are talking about. Um, you know, even down in Houston at the Sierra event, you know, this week, they were like, oh, no, we're we're going to you know stick with oil as long as we can. Um, oil as in like the current uh, oil production systems. And I think the only way we're going to move them in that direction is with regulations. Um I was actually talking to my my first boss, the environmental movement, Lois Corbett, uh, yesterday, and she was kind of like, hey, you know, if it hadn't been for federal regulations, there would still be lead in gasoline. You know, that's how you actually get these changes to happen. And that's why I think things like, you know, federal regulations on capping greenhouse gas emissions from down to zero is going to drive the companies in that direction because they can't have all this wiggle room. One of my big concerns right now, actually, is that... Pathways is stalling. They're ragging the puck until they find out whether or not they get Prime Minister Polyev 2025, who would, of course, make all of those proposed regulations go away. 
And, uh, you know, they're not putting money in the ground right now because they're waiting to see whether they really have to. Let me provide some important context here. Um, the oil sands companies have been driving down their production costs for a long time. It, for, for quite a time, up until recently, they were called what, what's called a marginal barrel. That's They only make would make profit when, when oil prices were high. So they've been driving down their costs. They, and now they're in the neighborhood of, they break even uh, at when West Texas Intermediate is between 30 and $45. They all have indicated that they're going to be driving that cost down to like mid $20 per barrel and maybe mid 30s. That makes them a competitive barrel. That means they make money even when prices go down. And so what they've done, every single one of them has employed economic modelers to, to model their competitiveness out to the future, 2050 and further, in a, a, the as the global market for oil shrinks. And every single one of them believes in their heart of hearts that yes. even if we get the inter, uh, International Energy Agency's net zero scenario of 25 million barrels uh, a day of, of consumption, down from 100 where it is today, they can still compete. And so for them, and I've argued this many times, for them, the, the status quo, where they are right now, is about as good as it gets. It's incredibly profitable. Prices are expected to be strong all throughout the rest of this decade into the early 2030s. There is literally no incentive for them to change the way they do business unless government is paying them to do it. Like build the, you know, they want two thirds of their CCUS or their decarbonization plan paid for by government. That's the problem. And that's why, you know, energy media has taken a fairly strong editorial position on this because, you know, there's the happy me message, but what's really going on is protect the status quo because it's, it's, it's putting a lot of money in shareholders jeans. Would you agree? They definitely want to protect the status quo. I mean, they're not alone in this. Like the interesting thing is, you know, other jurisdictions are also driving down their costs. And, you know, if you look at the materials that come out from Rystad, for instance, which is kind of like a global energy consulting firm, you know, they, in their view, oil sands are still more expensive than a lot of the alternatives. When they look at, you know, who survives in the NEIA's, um, net zero world, you know, it's Brazil, it's Saudi Arabia, it's Equinor, it's not the oil sands companies. And what I find fascinating is, you know, you and I have talked about this stuff for a long time. Like it used to be when we would say, oh, um, you know, there's going to be stranded assets in oil in fossil fuels. The companies all laughed at us. And then it was like, oh, it's now sort of like, sure, somebody's barrels are stranded, but not ours. And every company is making that argument. And this, the reality is not everyone can be right. And this is where I think we've got to try and shift our economy away from the reliance on fossil fuels. Okay. I want to make a, another point here. And this is a really, this is a bit esoteric, but it's really important. I mentioned in my previous comment that the, every one of the oil sands companies has modeled their competitiveness out to 2050. You know who hasn't modeled that competitiveness? Anybody else. The, all we have to to judge whether these companies will be competitive in a fuels only market past you know peak oil demand is their own modeling and we have no access yeah. to it we can't have independent we can't have independent economic modelers 
challenge their assumptions or redo their math, make sure that it's okay. It's all in the black box because it's proprietary and the Canadian government doesn't have this. Now, here's a good question for you because, and it's a bit of an aside, but it's germane to our conversation, I think. If you were going to give the oil sands company $7 billion, as the federal government did, for CCUS, and you hadn't done any modeling as to whether they might be competitive and or su subject to stranded assets, you know, in the 2030s and 2040s, what kind of policymaking is that? Crazy. Um, what I also find fascinating is... So I've, I've actually submitted a, a statement of concern with respect to the Synovus project I mentioned going into 2079, because Synovus has actually done a feasibility study of carbon capture and storage on Christina Lake facilities. They're not releasing that data. They don't include it in their application. They don't talk about, you know, what are the options for greenhouse gas management? They don't say how many greenhouse gas emissions there are. Um, and they should be required to say like, okay, if, if you're, if you're, if we're going to give you money for this, tell us what you, you know, show us the same numbers you would show you're showing your share, you would show shareholders. The kind of thing you can't fudge because that's called fraud. Um, and let's see those numbers. And what was interesting is they modeled trying to get 50% reductions at Christina Lake. Not the kind of like 100% or 90% that they sort of talk about. It was like 50% or maybe more. And they're not releasing those numbers, which I think is like the kind of thing that should be demanded. I like, you know, obviously, we thought we, they shouldn't get any public money for CCS. They have the money themselves. Um, you know, right. like half of this year's profits would have paid for the whole next 10 years of their carbon capture expenses. I want to wrap this conversation up because we got a little off the, the original question of yeah. our, you know, your complaint to the Competition Bureau that they're not being honest. And I want to make a point here. I've covered the oil and gas industry for a long, long time. And I'm wondering, I can tell you, there are very few industries worldwide and maybe big tobacco was the last one, but the oil and gas industry are masters at manipulating the, the public narrative. Oh yeah. Right. And that's what this campaign is all about. And the, and the, the danger from my point of view is not that they're telling fibs or they're putting, they're gilding the lily here when it comes to, it's that this controls the narrative and it sucks all the oxygen out. It takes all the space away from having a more honest conversation about where the oil sands are going and what they might be. What what alternatives? You know, we've talked about the carb advanced materials, feedstock for advanced materials. We can't have that conversation because they're too busy sucking all the oxygen out of the, the conversation by protecting the status quo. And I think that at the end of the day is the prevention of a more honest conversation is the real danger of the of this campaign and the others that they run. And that's part of our complaint. We're saying like one of the reasons we think the Competition Bureau needs to act is because they are actually shaping the, the the public debate, the policy debate in a way that is harmful to alternatives to their competitors in other sectors or even within the oil industry about doing more innovative things. Um, so we're asking for those ads to be taken off the air. They can't make net zero complaints in the same way Cura can't make recyclable campaigns around their little coffee things. And it'll be interesting to see what happens because Competition Bureau has come out, you know, out of its own volition and said, yeah, we're concerned about greenwashing. We want to do more on greenwashing. So I'm interested to see what they do with this complaint and whether or not they're willing to kind of, you know, taking on the oil industry is not easy. So they might not want to pick that fight, but I'm hoping they do. Now I want to wrap up this conversation with this point. You know, we've talked about the this kind of uh, narrative uh, management as being injurious to public conversations and so on. I want to argue 
that it's actually injurious to the oil sands companies themselves. Because if it's possible to build an advanced materials industry in Alberta that uses bitumen as feedstock, you could literally see this industry, on a, if it was on a, sustain, a sustainable basis, going well into the 22nd century, creating more wealth and more jobs for Alberta than it's ever been. But by sticking to the status quo, as the market declines, eventually they will go bankrupt or they'll they'll just close up shop. And so the OSAN's argument says, yeah, around 2050, 2060, we're done, right? We're just going to, you know, pack it in shareholders. You made your money you know, away. Uh, somebody else figure out how what to do with those tailings ponds that we've yeah. been, you know, that that kind of thing. Whereas the conversation that I'm suggesting would actually be of greater benefit over the long term to the oil sands companies themselves. There's that narrowly focused that they can't even see their own self-interest in this debate. Well, this is what Mark Carney called the tragedy of the horizon. Uh, you know, companies have these short-term uh, perspectives that are really bad at dealing with long-term problems like an energy transition, like climate change. I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, Keith, thank you very much for this. Always, uh, always a pleasure to get your insights. Thanks.